I'll be reading from the book of Philemon, verses 8 through 16. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this is perhaps, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. I think we can probably just admit that uh, forgiveness is very difficult. To forgive And to reconcile is very, very difficult. In fact, some would say even unnatural. And yet it is absolutely necessary. Because before the end of this day, you will probably give offense to someone or someone will give offense to you. And forgiveness will need to either be granted or it will need to be sought. And this little book of Philemon has a very big message on forgiveness. Now, you remember the story from last week. This is a personal letter. Paul the Apostle is writing to a man named Philemon. Philemon is a brother. He's a leader in the church at Colossae. Uh, He is a, a, a wealthy man. And he has this bondservant named Onesimus, and Onesimus has presumably taken something, money or property, from Philemon, and he is made off with it. Well, by God's providence, he runs into uh, Paul while he is in prison in Rome. And under Paul's influence and preaching of the gospel, he comes to a sound faith in Jesus Christ. He's converted. He's changed. And so Paul now is writing to Philemon to say, accept him and receive him as you would receive me. Now, this is unheard of. I mean, what would happen to him? Who, who would, would he be arrested? Would he be branded with an iron with the letters for fugitive or thief? Would he be executed? You don't know. I mean, I mean Paul. this is why Paul's appealing to Philemon. He's appealing to him to forgive Onesimus. Now, when I'm speaking about forgive, I'm speaking about the the letting go of the liability that someone has accrued because of their sin. You're not holding them responsible for the penalty or punishment. That, that, That the one who offends absorbs the sin without demanding retribution from the one who has given the offense. To forgive means that we're open to receive the person that has repented back into the fellowship, back into our lives. See, this little letter is speaking about a gospel that is so powerful that it doesn't just revolutionize human hearts, 
but it actually transforms relationships within people. And so in this, in this section, in this main body, Paul makes three appeals to Philemon to forgive. And he's going to give us instruction about how we are to think about forgiveness. And, and what I'd really ask you to do is think and listen on this sermon through the lens of the relationships that you have. This would not be a time to take this sermon and think about how so-and-so needs to hear this, or this person in my family needs to hear this. You look at it through the lens of your own relationships first, and, and then it may apply outside those relationships. Okay, so the first appeal that he seems to make is that he appeals for Philemon to forgive based upon love. You see it there in verses 8 and 9. He says, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what's required, but for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Now, now listen, what Paul's saying, this is a big deal. He's not giving order or command. Now, remember, Paul is an apostle. He has apostolic authority. He's been chosen by God. He speaks for God. He can command. He can interpret for God. He has a unique position in the history of the church. And yet he doesn't exercise that. He chooses to not exercise that. In fact, this is the only letter in the New Testament of which Paul doesn't say that he is an apostle of Christ. He says he's a prisoner of Christ. So he's not referencing this rank or authority as he appeals to Philemon. He doesn't even refer to, to common law or human principle or scriptural verses. He simply says, for love's sake. In other words, Paul knows that Philemon loves God. Paul knows that Philemon loves the people of God. We saw that back in the introduction. And so he's saying, Philemon, because you have a love for God in his gospel, and you have a love for people, forgive. Forgive an SMS. But then you see Paul get a little more personal and further this appeal in, in when he says, I, Paul, an old man. Now, that word for old man can be seen as an elder in the church. You know, like, hey, I'm a leader in the church, and I'm going to want you to do this. He's not using that form of the word. He's an older man. He's probably 60, 61, 62. Now, the closer I get to that, it seems young to me personally. I think it's, you know, it's kind of the new 50, maybe the new 45. In this day, people didn't live a lot longer than that. So I think he's referencing that, that, you know, when you're an older person in this context, there is a certain degree of respect and dignity and honor that you give to them. They've lived a long time. They've gotten to know a little bit about this life. And so he's kind of referencing my stage of life, Philemon. Listen to what I'm saying. I'm appealing to you. I'm an older man now. I've been in this world for a while. But then he references his prisoner that he's a prisoner now of Christ Jesus. He's in a Roman jail, under Roman guard, but he's a prisoner of Christ. He doesn't see his imprisonment as somehow out of God's will. He doesn't sound embittered. He doesn't sound angry. He's not asking, why me? He's not saying, God, I've served you all these years, and now I land in this stinky, dreadful prison. He's not talking that way. No, I'm here because of God. He sees this perfectly within the will of God. And what I love, at the end of his life in prison, he's still serving to try to reconcile people in the church. I pray that when I am his age, and you are his age, that we would be so concerned 
about the well-being of the people of God, that we'd still be diligent to be seeking reconciliation among the saints. This is why Bishop Lightfoot, he was a British uh, pastor in the 19th century, he said this, he said, How could Philemon resist an appeal which was penned behind prison walls with a manacled hand? You know, Martin Luther would say it a few hundred years before that men are better drawn than pushed. And so he appeals to him. Now, what motivates you to forgive? You know, is it, is it, well, it's the virtuous thing to do, or because it's the right thing to do, or because you just want to do it to get beyond it? What motivates you to forgive? If you have a struggle right now, perhaps it's in your marriage, or perhaps it's in your family, we do have family coming. You may have some situations that are kind of out of sync with family members. What motivates you to forgive? Or is it kind of a half-forgiveness that you practice, kind of a John F. Kennedy? Forgive your enemies, but don't forget their names. Don't forget their names. Is it that kind of half-reconciliation that you practice? I, I think you'd agree with me that an appeal works better, an appeal to love, that forgiveness works better out of a willing heart rather than a compulsion or a command. You know, if, if the analogy holds, you know, Paul speaks about the way we ought to give in 2 Corinthians is don't give under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. Well, I don't think we're supposed to forgive out of compulsion. I think God loves a cheerful forgiver. He, he, he loves when we forgive based upon love, that we have a love for God, that we have a love for the gospel, that our affections for Christ are growing because of what he's done for us, that my heart now has this, remember last week in, in Romans 5, that, that God has poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he's given to us, that out of that love now we can forgive. I think that's what he's driving at. In, in fact, Paul words it this way in Romans 13. He says, Owe no man anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And th th this is a move of the law to bring forgiveness. Or Reinhold Niebuhr, the past century said, forgiveness is the final form of love. Can you love? Now, I know some of you have conflicts right now that are fairly tall. I, I mean, they maybe have gone back a long ways. You, uh, you maybe are at an impasse with the person. Uh, maybe reconciliation has been attempted in the past, that there's a lot of hurt. Can I, can I appeal to you to love and to seek God for grace to repent? to seek forgiveness, to seek reconciliation, to not let your heart be burdened by the, by the anxiety or the frustration or the conflict that you've had? C can I appeal to you to pray and ask God, would you pour your divine love in my heart through your spirit that I might be able to forgive? And you know, if you're here today and you have a friend who is in conflict, maybe you're not in a conflict, but but you're part of a, of a relationship where a conflict exists. C can I encourage you uh, to be engaged, not to antagonize and to agitate the conflict, but, but to seek, and not to be silent either, not to just avoid it. Well, it's not my issue. I'm not, I'm not my brother's keeper. No, to be involved and, and to encourage them, to appeal to them based upon love to seek reconciliation. Could we not be like Paul? 
you know, where we are actively promoting peace and relationships among one another. I mean, can you imagine a church if we, all of us, all members here, if we actively pursued the reconciliation of conflict that exists within either our lives or the lives of those that are close to us? I'm not saying that you go find somebody you don't know and try to drudge up their conflict and fix that. I'm just talking about the very people around the proximity of your own life. You know, Paul said in Acts 24, 16, he says, So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. So, so there's that ongoing review that, that Paul was doing of his own life. Do you practice this? Do you start in the inner circle of, what is the state of my marriage right now? Have there been long-standing conflicts that, you know what, I just don't feel like dealing with them. It leads to the same corner every time we do it. I just don't want to do it. Or, or you go outside the circle of marriage a little bit. You go to your family, an extended family, maybe your church community. Let me encourage you to do that. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. But remember last week I said, I said this, that it is engaging in the lives of other people that we grow deeper in the knowledge of all the good things we have in Christ. It, 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 remember, it kind of seemed counterintuitive. You don't want to go into the fire, but it's through the fire that you find the joy. It's through these relationships, even though they're difficult, that we find the joy. So that's his first appeal. He's simply appealing, based upon the love that God has for us and that we have for him and his gospel, would you venture in and would you bring forgiveness to Onesimus and the conflict you have with him? Okay, the second appeal he makes, you see that starting in verse 10. Again, he repeats the word, I appeal to you. Now, now he's going to appeal to Philemon to forgive based upon the gospel, that Onesimus has now become a Christian, that he's, he's become a believer. Look at what he says there. He says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Literally, he's saying, I appeal to you in the interest of my child, whom I have begotten in my chains, Onesimus. So in Greek, Onesimus is at the end of the sentence. It's almost like he's teasing it out. You know, because... Philemon has got to be wondering, how can he bear a child in chains? There's an irony there. But, but, but you know the operative word there is that he became my child. Uh, so th there was this transformation. He wasn't a Christian, now he is a Christian. You see the spiritual language of new birth. He says, my very son, whose father I became. Paul led him to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul led him to become a Christian. Paul, Paul saw him move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. This is incredible. And, and Paul is appealing to him. He's now a Christian. And, and the irony, the irony of him in chains seeing a child born. There is no authority. There's no government that can stop the redemptive hand of God. I mean, God can bring forth a saint from a sinner as he chooses to. But, but he appeals not just that there's a conversion here, but that the conversion is evidenced in the usefulness of Onesimus. He's become useful, he says. In other words, this is evidence of the conversion. Now, there's a play on words here because Onesimus means useful. Oftentimes, owners of slaves would name a child or name a slave useful in hopes that he, in fact, would be useful. And so the play on the words is Onesimus, which means useful, 
useful who once was useless is now useful. He's saying that's, that's the evidence of salvation. That, that maybe he was lazy and insubordinate before, but now Paul says to me, he has been of great help to me. He says this. He says that I would be glad to keep him with me. Remember now, Paul's in prison. So the prisons in these days, radically different than our prisons. In our prisons, prisoners get fed. They get clothed. They get medical attention. In a Roman prison, there was no feeding. There was no clothing. There was no medical attention. If you didn't have outside help bringing food and clothing in, you got hungry, you got cold, and many of them just simply died because they had no help. And so Onesimus is going in and serving him. Onesimus isn't running away. He's standing his post. And remember this, there is a degree of shame to keep going into a prison. Everybody watches you go through the gate. Oh, you got family in there? You got friends in there? But, but it didn't bother Onesimus. Why? Because he knew that he had been saved. And he was being useful to God. This is why you see part saying, this is why you see Paul saying, I'm sending my very heart. I want you to feel the weight of Paul. Paul has seen him come to faith. And Paul has seen him grow in the faith. And so sending him back to Philemon is no small charge to Paul. Paul loves him. You know how that feels, don't you? If you've seen a person come to faith in Christ, and you've seen them grow in their Christianity, you've seen them sacrifice and suffer well, you've seen them walk out the faith, there is a, there is a proximity that you have to them that you love them. I mean, I can name many of you that I have seen come to faith in Christ and grow. You've become very dear, and many of you can testify to that. And to send him away, to send him back. Paul is focused on the gospel. He wants the gospel displayed as great in the reconciliation. So he's appealing to Philemon, forgive Onesimus. I'm sending my very heart to you. Now, if you're not a Christian here and you hear this language of conversion, what do you do with conversion? It's kind of bandied about in the culture. Being born again is kind of a, kind of a fun-making term now. But what conversion is, it's simply this. It's a big change of heart. To be converted is not to start going to church or I've got to clean up some of the uglier things in my life or I've got to bring my kids and start to introduce them to the things of God. That's not conversion. What conversion is, is conversion is a miracle. It's God implanting life within you. And God giving you a desire for himself. That your loves and your desires begin to change. That you desire holiness. You desire to know God. You desire to walk after him. This isn't something you discover or you kind of work yourself up into a spiritual frenzy, and now you've hit that super spiritual plane of I'm converted and born again. This is a work of God on us. And the way that we, we move in this is through faith, as Adam prayed. It's through faith in Jesus Christ that I am now trusting the care of my soul to one who died for me to bring me to the Father. And God takes out a heart of stone, he puts in a heart of flesh. And then that transformation begins to change. It begins to bear fruit in your life. Just the same fruit in Onesimus. Do you realize that Onesimus went on, per tradition of the church, to become the bishop of Ephesus? A thief, a fugitive, a slave. The bishop of Ephesus. He was useful. 
That's what the gospel does. The gospel makes us useful. It, it makes us work with diligence and honesty and integrity and love for the neighbor. The gospel changes us. The gospel bears fruit in our lives. You ought to see it in your own life. In fact, do you see the fruit of the gospel in your life? In the context of this, do you see it in your reconciling pursuits? Do you see it in wanting to seek peace and harmony in, your, in relationships that you have? Do you see that fruit of being born again? I want to reconcile. I don't want to part from the brethren. I don't want to stay angry and, and, and remove myself from them. If you've been sinned against, how easy has it been for you to put aside the hurts, maybe the words, maybe the treatment you feel you've received? Have you, have you reconciled in your mind, but you've stayed distant in your lives? You know, sadly, I see much conflict in the church that never has that full reconciliation. There's always a distance there. And, and, and for sins far less significant than what we have in this text right here. Or if you have sinned against somebody, have you sought forgiveness? I mean, have you gone and appealed to them for mercy? Forgive me, I am so sorry. I acted with absolute selfishness, and I'm sorry. Would you please forgive me? What can I do to restore? How can I show you that I am truly sorrowful, that you are so much more important to me than whatever the issue was? Have you done that? How do you have conflict right now that you need to do that with? Has it borne the fruit of your life? You know, Jonathan Edwards, in speaking about conversion and fruit in his book, Religious Affections, says something that I just, I just love. I, and I've said it probably once a year since I got here. But he said this, he says, There may be several good evidences that a tree is a fig tree, but the highest and the most proper evidence of it is that it actually bears figs. That, that'd be your test. If it's got figs hanging off of it, you know it's a fig tree. If we are people who pursue reconciliation and forgiveness and harmony in our relationships, that'd be a good indication that you've been, you've been born again. So he appeals to him because Onesimus has been converted, that you're brothers. And this really leads us to the third appeal. The third appeal is, is that there's been a change in status now, that Onesimus was once a bondservant to you, but now he's a brother to you. He's a brother. There's a change in status He's now part of God's kingdom. So the need to forgive has just been heightened. He's one of us. And, and what, what Paul's saying as he's in jail is this is of God. This is of God. Look with me at 15, because you may pass right over this when you read it. But he says, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. What Paul's doing is Paul's trying to explain to Philemon why the whole thing went down like it did. He said, maybe this is why he was parted from you. Now, th that word, to be parted, is passive. So it is like Onesimus is being acted upon and not acting. God did the parting. God did the parting, why? So that he would be separated for a while, but brought back to you forever. So God had a bigger plan. Now, in no way is, is Onesimus being exonerated for his sin. No way is responsibility for his theft being overlooked. 
But what Paul is saying is behind his sin, God was still working to bring about his salvation. Is this incredible? I mean, our own sin doesn't jeopardize the plan of God. Our own lunacy and stupid mistakes and harsh words don't threaten or jeopardize God's plan from advancing. Even if you're not a Christian here, we want to know the reasons for things. We do. We ask why. Why did this happen? May I remind you, if you're not a Christian, just asking why, it implies that you believe there ought to be some order or design to this world and universe. Why did that happen? It implies an order. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're an atheist and you, there is no God, then you should never ask the question why. Because if the world is fully random, born out of randomness, there's never a design or order to be asked, well, why doesn't it fit within that? But the fact that we ask why implies that we believe, even intuitively, that we know God's up to something. That's why even the atheist has a, a level of belief that, 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 that there is an order, that there is a plan. God's instilled that in us, and I'm thankful that he has. Because all of us have this inner witness to the reality that God exists. Well, God sent an SMS to Paul. But Paul's going to send an SMS to Philemon. And he's going to say to him, he's no longer a slave to you. He's a brother. This is big. This is big. He's changing the whole dynamic of that relationship. And, and, and he's a brother to you now, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So he's a brother to you right now in the flesh. It isn't going to be one of those things we experience in heaven. He's a brother now, right now, in the everyday affairs of life. You can't look at him as a slave anymore. He's a brother to you, and he's a brother in the Lord. He's equal to you and equal with you. He's a co-heir of grace before God. God does not look on him now differently than you. He looks at you both as children. There's this cosmic shift. And I want you to know that this, that this reorientation, and I would call it a radical reorientation, is because of the reorientation that has come about with us and God through Christ. This is the gospel. The gospel has reoriented us from moving from an enemy to a child of God. And that whole reorientation, you may not have felt like an enemy, but you were apart from God. You were ungrateful. Before coming to faith in Christ, you lived your lives. You just assumed that you deserved breath and you deserved everything that you worked for. And rarely would you give thanks to God for all that he has given to you. You were at enmity with God and he has reconciled you to himself through faith in one who has come to live among us, to die for our sins and to be raised to new life, to be ascended through the heavens and sitteth at the right hand of God, the Father, for us, the church. It's incredible. That is why we can reconcile with each other, because we have been reconciled to God. Now, you notice here, and many people will read Philemon, and they say, but he doesn't condemn slavery. He's not condemning slavery. Shouldn't he be condemning slavery? And, and throughout this book, in, throughout the years, in the history of the church, this book has been used to either condemn slavery or command emancipation. In fact, I saw this um, probably in the mid-1800s when uh, abolitionist language was starting to come up in the church. And preachers were, were beginning to speak about um, the nature 
of slavery being contrary to the word of God. Uh, I even saw this old document where where some of the southern theologians were trying to advance a biblical basis for slavery, and Philemon was used to advance the idea that slavery was part of God's will. And the example was that Philemon was sent back. Yeah, he was a slave, he stayed a slave. Just flying right over the text. But others have used it to command freedom. Does this text condemn slavery? No, not directly. Does it command emancipation? No, not directly. What do we do with that? Well, I want to answer that question for you, but I want to first explain something about slavery. Slavery was very different. When we think of slavery, we think of the European or the American experience of it in the, in the 18th and 19th centuries. It was very different from the Roman slavery. Roman slavery was more of an indentured servitude. It was not an employee-employee relationship. I'm not driving that far, but there is an indentured servitude. Uh, slaves could purchase their own freedom. Many, they say, most of the slaves in Rome would in fact be free by the time they were 30. Slaves were educated. They occupied various professions of life. We know that Rome, the Roman Empire, was built on slaves as much as a third to a fifth of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. It was more of a social status, an economic status. I mean, the literary and the, and the cultural and the architectural feats that they produced it was because a lot of work was done by the slaves to furnish them the time and ability to do it. But I want you to see that the difference between the slavery in the Roman Empire and the slavery in America and Europe was that it was not based on race. Here it was. And that is a big difference to understand. It's not apples and apples. I'm not trying to say that slavery in the Roman Empire was a favored position. I'm not saying that at all. There were plenty of brutish owners of people. I'm just simply saying that it's not a one-to-one -one comparison. Now, many, many theologians will want to say, well, Paul didn't outright condemn slavery because if he had, it would have brought great harm on the Christian slaves because they would have equated sedition and revolutionary movements with the gospel, and then the power of the government would crush the Christian community. I, that may be true, I don't know. I, I, don't, I think it's hard to prove, frankly. I think there's something bigger. I think what Paul was going for was something more fundamental to who we are as people than just go after the injustice of slavery. Because he doesn't take on the injustices of war. He doesn't take on the injustices of sexual slavery or even sexism. He doesn't take on those injustices. Are they less significant? No, I think what Paul was doing was he's showing that it's the power of the gospel that has to be preached to change the human heart that begins to filter out and change the relationships that we have. That it's going after the gospel and the changed relationships that will ultimately strangle the institution of slavery. In fact, F.F. F. Bruce, a New Testament scholar, said that, that the gospel creates an atmosphere where the institution of slavery will wilt away and die. There's a new dynamic. He's a brother to me. I can't own my brother. He, we share the same father. There's the implication of granting. For, he is one like me. How could I endure this relationship that is promoted with the institution of slavery. So, so I think he was going after something more fundamental. Ultimately, 
looking to squeeze the life out of slavery and sexism and, and racism and sexual slavery and every other social injustice. The gospel just kills it at the root. And I think that's what he was going for. So this third appeal that we have new relationships now, this has implications for us today. I mean, the first implication is that we look at each other differently. I mean, the markers of our culture, of race and of economics and of social standing, of educational levels, those dissolve in the church. Oh, the differences we have are still there and they're still real. But the differences we have are used to highlight our commonality in the gospel. So we rally around the gospel even with our differences. Do you have friendships that cross social, economic, educational, racial lines? We're called to do that. I mean, that displays the gospel, this this crossing of lines. That's why Paul says, and I read this last week in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We don't look at people anymore as color and skin and, and body type and education. No, no, no. We have been made one in Christ. That's why when Paul said there is neither slave nor free, there's neither uh, Jew nor Greek nor male nor female, he wasn't dismissing differences. He was saying that they are subsumed under our oneness in Christ. We are a colony of heaven. We are mimicking and we are displaying the attributes of heaven as a colony of it. That we, don't, we don't have markers that way anymore. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote something, I think, profound. I've quoted this before too, but it's one of those things that bears repeating, reminding us. Now, I will say this before I give this quote. It is a shame, a black eye on the church, that it has taken so many years to let the implications of the gospel work out so that slavery was abolished as late as it was. We don't want to continue that black eye. C.S. Lewis says, It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, is only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or these two different destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them, that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all of our friendships, all of our loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, they're all mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it's the immortal souls with whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit. Immortal horrors and everlasting splendors. That's who we are. Now, for the church, we have to look at each other differently. That's the takeaway. But not just look at each other differently. Uh, we're also called to, it changes our implications or our view of God. Listen, God has chosen to use a slave to accomplish this great work. He passes over presidents and prime ministers to get his work done. 
He chooses this slave from Phrygia. He chooses a slave and a master of whom probably weren't known 20 miles outside where their location was. They weren't even known. And here, in the eternal word of God, he uses a slave to accomplish his purposes. Can you believe that? How many of you have said, God couldn't use me for something? Uh, God couldn't really do, you know, I'm not gifted like someone else, or I couldn't really be used, useful in his context, or useful to do this work for him. And here, Onesimus, who was once useless, now becomes useful. There is no one here that is a Christian that can say, he can't use me, or he doesn't want to use me, or I'm too low on the totem pole to be used. God loves to use slaves. He did call Israel out of slavery. He did use Israel as slaves to advance his purposes. The the disciples did call themselves slaves of Jesus Christ. Slavery is used, that of God. And he uses slaves, us, to do his work. But it also changes our view of conflict. You know, we often look at conflict as a horrible thing. Avoid it. Just ignore it. Don't speak about it. Don't address it. Don't pursue it. And yet we see here in this text that conflict was used, that God was behind the conflict, that God was using the conflict to advance a more glorious purpose. Can you think this way about conflict? Can you you join with me? And when you have conflict, whether it's in this church or in your family or in your marriage or in your parenting, can you look at this and say, you know what? God parted Onesimus for a season to make him a brother to Philemon forever. Can we look at conflict as a means of grace that God might advance his purposes through us? That even in our stupidity and the conflict and the, and the corners we get into with people, that God may still use that? And then last, would you, would you allow this text to also change your view of how the church is to relate to the world? We are to reflect God to the world. We are the colony of heaven. So, so the behaviors in heaven, there will be no unreconciled conflict in heaven. Now, we won't mimically, we won't perfectly mimic that on earth, but we are to be a reflection of it. And so the attributes and the qualities and the behaviors and the customs of heaven are to be more and more emulated and and reflected in the church to the world. And that's why we are called the outpost of heaven or the colony of heaven. Can you with me just see ourselves in light of that? That we have a responsibility to the world to reflect what heaven will be like? We're to be such that when people see us, they're thinking that would be a nice community to be a part of. And, and it's just a faint reflection, a foretaste of what, will heaven, what heaven will be like for us. So you see Paul makes these appeals. He makes three appeals. He appeals to forgive Onesimus based on love and based on the power of the gospel and based on this new order, God's new society. So, so let me return to the question. You know, probably by the end of today, you may need to be seeking forgiveness or you may need to be extending forgiveness. Can you take the time this afternoon and do a moral inventory of your relationships and and think where those fractures and where those unresolved conflicts are? And can I appeal to you, as Paul appealed to Philemon, to move with reconciliation towards those before the holidays, even if it's with a phone call or a face-to-face? It may just be, you know what, I'm sorry that I've let this go so long. Would you forgive me? Can we, can we start over on this one? 
So, so move in that way. You know, we don't want to be a people who look in the mirror and forget what we look like. We want to be a people who hear the word and then do the word. Let's take a minute now, maybe just pray. Use this, the next few seconds to just consider um, what I've said, this word. Consider the text, maybe. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Uh, think about that. Consider your relationships, maybe in concentric circles with your marriage or your friends and your family and, and those in this church. Maybe go out and, and just do a quick review of your relationships. And then I'll pray for us.